0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We hear from conservative leadership hopeful Pierre Poiliev. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is wary of next week's federal budget. Ukrainian refugees will soon be arriving in Hamilton should all of Ontario's major highways have a higher speed limit. We'll tell you why most pet owners in this country want a more flexible job and we tackle a new report on standardized testing in the classroom. The GMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Conservative MP Pierre Polyev joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Pierre, thanks for uh, uh, waking up early with us on a, a hump day. Uh, how are you? How is your day going so far?
2: It's great. It's a glorious, sunshiny day here in Ottawa.
0: Uh, You're running for the conservative leadership, as we know. You're the MP for Carleton, which is in the Ottawa area. We know that the uh, federal budget is going to be released next Thursday. It's expected to include, well, a host of measures, as we uh, suspect, uh, including the pharmacare and dental care programs, part of the Liberal NDP deal. What are your thoughts on that, and and what needs to be in this budget? Well, on
2: the first two, um, liberals constantly spend tens of billions of dollars promising to make uh, certain services available to people. They fail to deliver the services and then hit Canadians with the cost. Let me give you an example. Uh, they have this $40 billion housing, affordable housing program that they've been implementing now for half a decade. And after spending all that money, house prices have actually doubled. So I just hope that they're not going to spend billions of dollars Uh, increasing the cost of medicines and dental care, the same the way that they've done with housing. Um, Look, the reality is that inflationary deficits and taxes have led to the biggest cost of living increases in 30 years. We have the second worst housing bubble on planet Earth, only behind uh, New Zealand. Uh, And Uh, The typical house now costs $868,000, forcing many 32-year-old people living with their parents in in the basement. And this is uh, the result of the government printing cash, flooding the financial and mortgage market with it, which bids up the house prices uh, and bids up the cost of food and uh, heat and uh, groceries. Uh, So I call it just inflation. They need to get rid of these inflationary deficits and taxes so that people's paychecks uh, go further and people can afford to live their lives.
0: Pierre, it's no secret that you uh, threw your support behind the Freedom Convoy in uh, Ottawa. If you become conservative leader, do you expect any blowback at the ballot box three years from now?
2: No, I'm proud to stand with the working class people of this country who've been demolished over the last two years. Uh, They need a voice. Uh, The the truck driver who was shut out of a job for the mere uh, decision of not getting vaccinated, even though he's the least likely person to spread a virus, he's alone all day in his truck. And the guy, this is the same guy we were calling a hero for driving across the border, delivering our goods and services without a vaccine for two years. Uh, All of a sudden, Trudeau turned him into a villain. But it's not just uh, truckers, it's the single mom who can't afford food for her kids or the teenager that is suffering with mental illness because of uh, COVID shutdowns preventing her from doing her sporting and social activities, uh, or the small business person constantly knocked over by lockdowns. The the working class of this country has been demolished over the last two years by big bossy government that has um, attacked people's freedoms, but also ballooned inflation to destroy the purchasing power and the paychecks of our our workers. So I'm fighting for those people. I'm fighting to bring back our freedoms and also to restore the purchasing power of our money so that people can afford a dignified life again.
0: Got about uh, 90 seconds or so. You made a couple of interesting statements over the last number of days uh, regarding uh, cryptocurrency, including, quote, uh, give people back control of their money, keep crypto legal and let it thrive. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, look, a lot of people are looking to opt out of uh, traditional government money because, of course, with all the money printing, the government has done to fund its deficits. Uh, they've caused this massive inflation. So first of all, we need to stop the, de- the money printing, printing deficits to bring inflation under control. We need to get rid of the carbon tax to lower gas and other costs. But third, we need to let people have the choice to opt into other forms of cash, like Bitcoin uh, and related technologies that will allow them to make purchases if they choose uh, with what willing buyers and sellers uh, and that means keeping it legal avoiding a china style ban and um, stream streamlining uh, and simplifying the regulations and uh, taxes that treat them so that people can follow the law uh, and comply simply
0: pierre i wish we had uh, a few more minutes but i don't i appreciate your time this morning and best of luck on the campaign trail
2: Great to be with you. Thank you very much.
0: Pierre Poiliev running for the conservative leadership and an MP for Carlton. And he will be in the House of Commons, of course, next week for the unveiling of the latest federal budget, which comes down April the 7th.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Our government was re-elected on a commitment to grow our economy, make life more affordable, and to continue building a Canada where nobody gets left behind that is exactly what we are doing. And that is what we're going to continue to do in the budget that I will present to this House on April 7th,
4: 2022.
0: That is Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Krista Phelan about to present her government's latest budget next week. What is going to be in that budget? What is going to be left out? Uh, Let's get a bit of a preview and some analysis on what we may hear next week. Franco Terrazano is the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayer's Federation and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Franco.
5: Hey, good morning, and thanks so much
0: for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Once again, we're hearing that this budget is expected focus on spurring economic growth. How is it going to do that, do you think?
5: Uh, Well, we'll see. What we want to see in the budget is to stop this crazy dive into debt that the federal government has taken us on over the last, well, five or so years, really. Um, Right now, the government is more than $1 trillion in debt. That debt is increasing by about $400 million every single day. So it means that each Canadian is already on the hook to pay about $31,000 in federal government debt But unfortunately, this government just seems to think that the debt problem isn't a priority. We haven't seen any plan to balance the budget. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau originally told us in 2015 he'd balance the books by 2019, but he missed that one by, uh, by a country mile. And the government's own independent budget watchdog says that under the current trajectory, we might not see a balanced budget until 2070.
0: We can expect to hear more about upcoming social programs like a National Pharmacare deal, a dental care program. How much do you think that's going to cost? Oh,
5: man. Yeah, that's, that's, that is a great question. I mean, Pharmacare, you're looking at about $30 billion. Dental care, you're looking at more than a billion dollars every single year. But here's the thing that we have to remember is that the government doesn't have money for this. Uh, in 2021-2022, so the fiscal year, that is just ending. Uh, The government's running about $145 billion deficit. So there isn't any money for this. Um, But here's what's so concerning, is the recent deal that the Liberal government made with the NDP. The Liberal government was already spending all-time highs before the pandemic. And in the last election, the NDP wanted to spend about $200 billion more. So there's absolutely no money for this. And what's so concerning is that all this borrowing all this deficit spending all of this money printing from ottawa is really driving up the cost of living here in canada
0: can those costs be offset though because the government's pandemic programs and benefits are ending well the
5: problem is is that are they ending (laughs) we we've we've heard from uh the finance minister that that they'll continue to roll out this spending as long as they think is needed for COVID 19. all we've heard from the federal government is really some loose commitment to end this program spending so we're definitely going to keep an eye on that but here's where we have to remember is that even before the pandemic this government was running huge deficits Even before the pandemic, we couldn't afford these types of programs. If you look at overall spending in 2018, which was the year before any COVID-19 touchdown, it was before there was any recession, you had the federal government that was already spending all-time highs. So it was spending more in 2018 than the government ever did during any single year during World War II, and that's even after accounting for inflation and population growth. So this government already needed to rein in spending long before COVID-19 touched down.
0: Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900CHML. We're previewing next week's federal budgets. Um, as we know, Canada is a major oil exporter, most of which goes to the United States. What impact do you think rising oil prices may or may not have on the budget?
5: Well, rising oil prices are generally a good thing for taxpayers and for government coffers. Uh, We just saw this in Alberta, right, where Alberta is on its way to post a a, a, um, a, a balanced budget because of these higher natural resource projects. Uh, But one of the things that we're seeing in Canada is that we're not fully able to um, really benefit from what's going on in oil and gas just because our governments are making it harder to develop oil and gas projects, pipelines, things of that nature. We're already losing out on billions of dollars uh, just because we do have a pipeline deficit in Canada. And of course, the federal government's laws like Bill C-69, which is referred to as the No More Pipelines Law, the discriminatory tanker ban on the West Coast, is really making it harder uh, for Canada to attract the investment and raise the government revenue that's needed to plug these deficit holes and fund
0: services. On the flip side, the federal government's new climate change plan projects that oil and gas uh, industry is going to need to cut emissions by 42% by 2030. That is a lot for the country to meet its emissions targets. And this comes as the carbon tax on Friday is about to go up as well. Where does the CTF stand in all this?
5: Oh, well, we think it's the absolute worst possible time to be raising taxes like the carbon tax, um, while Canadians are just getting soaked with higher prices across the board. I mean, the carbon tax is gonna make things, uh, things a lot more difficult. Remember in, in the clip that you played at the beginning of the segment, they say that they want to uh, look at affordability. Well, are they really trying to improve affordability with one carbon tax hike at a time? And this is also coming at a time when other countries, other jurisdictions are reducing fuel taxes. You have South Korea that just cut gas taxes by 20 percent. You have India that cut fuel taxes. Poland's cutting fuel taxes. You have Spain and France cutting electricity taxes. The United Kingdom just said that they're going to cut fuel tax. Even President Joe Biden in the U.S., he said he's considering gas tax relief. So you have other countries understanding these inflationary pressures and trying to reduce taxes while Ottawa continues to stick us with
0: a higher tax bill. Uh, Gas prices in this neck of the woods uh, came down a little bit overnight, but an expected bump, of course, with the carbon tax uh, injection uh, will add a little fuel to the fire, so to speak. Franco, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, my
5: pleasure. Thanks for having
0: me on. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Again, budget day in this country is April the 7th.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The U.N. refugee agency says more than four million refugees have now fled Ukraine since Russia launched its war more than a month ago now. More than two million of those refugees are in Poland. Uh, Many of them will soon be coming to Canada and uh, to Hamilton as well. So how are Hamilton's immigration services and other agencies getting ready for these incoming refugees? Lily Lumsden is the Senior Regional Manager of Employment and Immigration or Immigrant Services at the YMCA of Hamilton Burlington Brantford and joins us now. Good morning, Lily. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Do you have any indication on how many refugees could possibly be coming to places like Hamilton, Burlington, and Brantford?
3: Um, we don't have exact numbers, uh, but what we are um, in some of our meetings and conversations uh, with the federal government, um, we uh, have estimates of, of around fifty thousand ish uh, coming to Hamilton. Sorry, not Hamilton. coming get to Canada. And, uh, of that, uh, we're, we're thinking between 600 and 1500 that could possibly come to Hamilton. It could be more or less, um, could possibly be more, again, depending on supports and services, uh, that are available and friends and family members that are, uh, currently living in Hamilton will play a cu- a huge part in, um, in, uh, in those from the Ukraine wanting to, to come to Hamilton as family reunification.
0: Do you have any information on when uh, individuals or families from Ukraine will be coming to Canada?
3: Uh, we're expecting within the next couple of weeks. Um, we have been meeting with our federal partners. Uh, we had a meeting last week with uh, the mayor uh, as well as the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and the estimates at that time was about two and a half weeks. So we're looking at a couple of weeks from now. So we are working vigorously in terms of the Hamilton Immigration Partnership Council in order to be able to pull together resources, uh, pull together partners. And, and we're looking at trying to have a coordinated effort um, really to ensure that, um, that all of those who do come to Hamilton get everything that they need in an equitable, equitable way.
0: Yeah, let's dive into that. How is the YMCA and other local agencies and organizations getting ready for these refugees?
3: Primarily through the Hamilton Immigration Partnership Council, which I am the outgoing chair uh, of the council. Um, and that has really been a great venue for, um, not just for the Ukrainians, but for the Afghan refugees as well as the Syrian refugees. And so we've been able to pull together the, the agencies around the table. Um, to be able to, to, you know, have conversations about what do we have available? What's, what are existing capacities? What does the new stream look like? Uh, what sources of, so for example, income support. Will the Ukrainians have income support when they get here? Um, cause those types of things will allow us to really plan for the critical things like housing, employment, health, uh, those types of things. So we had uh, a meeting last, we had two meetings last week. We have another meeting next week to really kind of drill down to what we need to do locally uh, on the ground uh, in order to be able to be ready for when
0: they arrive. Lily Lumsden is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Senior Regional Manager of Employment and Immigrant Services at the YMCA Hamilton Burlington Brantford. One of the issues you just mentioned is housing. That's probably the main obstacle ahead, would you say?
3: That would be the key thing that we're, we're working very closely with um, with the mayor, as the mayor's office at the city, as well as the uh, the MP's office in terms of being able to ensure that um, those arriving that they get not only um, affordable but appropriate housing, um, and and we are looking at you know different things. Like you know when they first arrive using uh, hotels in the beginning, um, also offers up from the community where they can house for short term temporary uh, stays in their homes. The critical thing is, and one of the things, the critical thing is is the affordability. So if the income support for the, um, the Ukraines is appropriate, there actually is housing. But it's that the market rate for housing, um, is quite high, and so it's that affordability piece and being able to support the, the income component of, um, of that until uh, those arriving are able to find employment and, and those types of things, which we have lots of supports for employment services, uh, so we, we do feel that once they arrive and get a place to live, get a little bit settled, then the ability to find employment will be quite quick. But it's that in between um, and being able to, you know, have the right level of income to afford what is out there.
0: So many tentacles to this. It's, you know, them (laughs) getting here, the housing, schooling, uh, the language barrier that is probably going to exist for many of these individuals. Uh, It's going to be a a really stressful time in terms of their mental health as well. Uh, There's a lot of heavy lifting going on here. Uh, yes, there is,
3: <laughs> and uh, you know the the agencies uh, around the table have been working uh, diligently, both in meetings as well as behind the scenes, trying to look at what resources that we currently have, what are additional resources that we might need, and you know with the with the Syrian refugee influx, we really the both level of governments uh, in terms of the federal and provincial were really great at responding to you know to to those funding needs and so we expect the same to happen in this case it's just a matter of the agencies being able to pull together what do we have what what are the gaps and then uh, kind of following through with that paperwork on the request for additional funds Um, but hamilton is a generous community we've had a great response from community members in terms of donating clothing um, donating rooms in their homes uh, financial donations so you know i'm i'm hopeful that we will you know, the, the transition process is never easy, but I am hopeful that it will get settled and, and that, you know, the, the local community will, will do great things to support
0: um, those coming in. Well, with places like the local YMCA leading the charge, it should be a, a smooth as process as expected. Lily, really appreciate the time today.
3: Great. Thank you. And just if anyone wants further information around things that are available, um, if they go to uh, hamiltonimmigration.ca, that's the key website where we're going to have um, all of the updated information there.
0: Great stuff. Thanks, Lily. Thank you. Lily Lumsden, Senior Regional Manager, Employment and Immigrant Services, YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, and Brantford. You can also donate to the Red Cross, Amnesty International, and cufoundation.ca, just some of the many websites that you can make a financial donation to help Ukrainian refugees.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: You heard yesterday from the provincial government that the pilot project that tested the 110 kilometer per hour speed limit on a few stretches of highway. In Ontario, including the QEW from Hamilton to St. Catharines, is now being made permanent on those six stretches of highway. But should it be made on all highways, at least all major highways in this province, all of the QEW, the 401, the 400, the 404, uh, the DVP, you name it. Every major highway in the province should the speed limit now be 110 kilometers per hour. Chris Klimak is the director and founder of Stop100.ca, a driver advocacy organization, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Rick. Hello. Your thoughts on yesterday's announcement. Is this exciting? Is this a step forward, a step back? Where are you guys coming from? Uh,
6: so it's I would say it's one good news and two bad news so one good news is that they finally changed the law they've changed the speed limit after 40 years of this incorrect and dishonest speed limit of 100 kilometers an hour they finally changed it to uh, to a different number so that's good news uh four decades is a long time now bad news times two is that the speed limit they've chosen is incorrect it's not uh coinciding with the data the speed limit should have been 120 and 130, uh, depending on the stretch and based on the data that we've seen, um, which is the prevailing driving speeds on our highways. And the second bad news is that uh, they've only chosen a few short stretches, very short uh, stretches, few and far between, uh, very far from major metropolitan areas. So why are you calling
0: this 110 kilometer per hour speed limit on these six stretches dishonest or incorrect? What what data have you obtained to suggest it is uh, incorrect.
6: So there's two uh, reasons for that. One is what's called the, uh, the prevailing speeds on our highways, uh, which are, uh, it's, that's called the 85th percentile speed. That is the uh, speed that is uh, practiced by the vast majority, the super majority of the drivers on our highways. Those speeds have been measured for the last, again, three, four decades, and they are coming up at about 125, okay, 120 to 126 to be specific. So the speed limit should have been placed between 120 and 130, not 110. With 110, you're still going to see a lot of uh, law breaking, which is what we wanted to prevent. We wanted to legalize current driving speeds because they are very safe. And the second reason for that is uh, global practices. You know, We are the slowest as far as the speed limit, not the practiced speeds, but as far as the speed limit posted, we are one of the slowest jurisdictions in the entire world. Most countries post between 120 130 most uh, g7 countries and industrialized countries most of europe 120 130
0: now the argument against boosting it to 120 or 125 or 130 is that we'll see drivers as we do now going well over the speed limit because well i guess they feel like they they have to will we see if a speed limit let's say is 120 are we going to see most people then say all right i'm going to go 140.
6: no actually rick we will not and again that's not my speculation this is data so first of all, people already go 140. For example, on the 407, which is a state of the art, beautiful, fantastic highway. Uh, even Germany hasn't seen a highway like this. I've been to Germany many times. Uh, people already do 130, 140 on the 407 and many beautiful other stretches of our highways. Uh, the answer to your question is very simple. Uh, people do not drive faster than they feel comfortable with. Okay, Nobody has a death wish. So no matter what you paint on a speed limit sign, people will still drive at the speed they feel comfortable with. So I'll ask you a question. Uh, If your speedometer broke today at work, would you be able to go back home safely without the speedometer? Of course you would, because you would simply drive whatever feels safe.
0: That's a good point. Chris Klimek is our guest. He's the director and founder of Stop100.ca, a driver advocacy organization. I'll play a devil's advocate here, and people say speed kills, and the faster we go, the more dangerous
6: our highways become. What's your answer to that? So changing the speed limit, which is, you know, the numbers painted on a sign, doesn't actually change uh, anything as far as you're driving, okay, and the government has actually admitted that in their press release. They've said two things, that the operating speeds haven't really changed, which we've known for the last 10 years over advocacy on this, and that the fatality rate has not changed. So changing the numbers painted on a sign changes something completely different. It changes the way you're driving legally, okay? For now, you don't have to watch out for the police, you don't have to deal with disrupted traffic when once in a while you're going to get somebody going 100 in the middle lane and everybody has to slam on their brakes and pass that person on the left and on the right. So, you know, we're going to keep more money in our pockets, we're going to be able to drive more comfortably, we're not going to have to be looking out for the medians, for the bridges, looking for this parked cruiser that's out there to hunt us. So our driving will be legal. That's what we've been calling on for, for the last 10 years, Legalize current driving.
0: That's the other part, too. We only have a minute to discuss this is you mentioned that people are comfortable driving at, you know, whatever speed they're comfortable at. Most people are comfortable driving 100. So if you increase the speed limit to, let's say, 120, that disparity in speed might cause some
6: problems. So, so that's actually not correct. Again, based on the data, most people do not drive at 100. Uh, The 85th percentile speed, which is the speed that the 85th percent of the drivers do not exceed, is about 120, 125. Uh, We even have a video of an OPP cruiser doing 130 on Highway 400. And a good bunch of good citizens following that cruiser at 130 kilometers an hour on a beautiful stretch of Highway 400.
0: Good discussion, Chris. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rick.
6: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton
1: podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Recent survey shows over two-thirds of pet owners have searched for a more flexible job to devote more time to their pets. Very interesting scenario. We know there was a great reset or a great resignation, as they called it, uh, primarily amongst the millennial population when it came to their jobs. They're thinking, hey, if I can work from home, I'd rather do something else. And hey, if a little Fido or Fluffy's around too, all the better. Uh, Mark Bordo is our next guest. He's the CEO and co-founder of veterinary telehealth platform Vetster and joins us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mark. Good
4: morning, Rick. Uh, thanks for having me on. Nice to be
0: here. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. You uh, recently conducted a survey with uh, OnePoll and found a number of interesting things, including that a lot of people are willing to quit their jobs to spend more time with their pets. I'm, I have to be honest, I'm extremely surprised by that.
4: Yeah, I would, it is, it's an interesting topic. You know, I think that the workforce is drastically changed over the last couple of years, um, especially when we look at millennials and such a high percentage of them have adopted pets over the last few years. And what we're finding is that there's a lot of competition for this incredible talent And employees have the opportunity to really create some new work environments. And one of the things that they're really interested in and want to have as part of their work life is the opportunity to bring their pets to work.
0: Seventy one percent, according to this poll, have made a significant life change because of their pet and 60 percent have previously left a job because they were forced to return to an office that wasn't pet friendly. Why is this an important factor for not only the millennial population, but I'm sure others who are listening and contemplating this would want a pet friendly workplace? So
4: I always like to say pet friendly is not first. It's not for everybody, right? For Uh, employers and companies where this works and employees really are happy to have let's say dogs running around the office it is a remarkable experience it is a chance to I have great icebreakers with your teammates it's a chance to get away from your desk when uh, the weather allows and go for a quick walk around the block or even take a walk in meeting it humanizes as well some of your teammates who, you know, you get a chance to see in a different way, as opposed to the day-to-day professionalism that you, you see all the time at work. And so it really brings teams together. Um, certainly we found that at Vetster that we have dogs roaming around our office all the time. And the joy it brings to our office, the comfort, the safety, and, and the camaraderie that Uh, the dogs have brought to our office, Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: So is there a great sense that because many people have been working from home and they have their pets at home, they want to replicate that if they are going and and maybe perhaps when they're going back to the workplace?
4: Replicated for sure is part of it, but also there's a great deal of care required uh, for these pets when you're not with them. So being able to bring the, let's say, dogs to the office provides the pet owner with the opportunity to still care for that pet to reduce anxiety both for the pet as well as for themselves and also reduce a great amount of cost related to the care of those of those animals. So in a lot of ways, you're absolutely reducing the stress of your employees and some of the responsibility of your employees so that they can focus on work.
0: That's an interesting part of this that I didn't really think of, because as we know, a lot of people during the pandemic were forced to work from home. A lot of those people ended up adopting pets. And now if they're going back to the workplace, the pet is like, hey, wait a minute. You know, my owner has been here all this time and now they're not here anymore. And that could be quite stressful for the pet.
4: Absolutely. Separation anxiety is a very real thing. We get lots of calls about that on uh, at VETSTER of how. Uh, pet owners can deal with this separation anxiety as uh, we're returning back to
0: work. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Mark Bordeaux. He is the CEO and co-founder of veterinary telehealth platform Vetster. We're talking about a recent survey that shows over two-thirds of pet owners have searched for a more flexible job to devote more time to their pets. Another item from this poll is that 48%, so nearly half, of pet owners say pets improve productivity. And I would have thought differently because my pets are certainly a distraction.
4: Yeah, no, it's funny. I think it really depends on the behavior of the animal. At Vetster, we have a lot of uh, dogs running around the office and they absolutely do improve our productivity. But these dogs are also well-trained. They are great um, working you know, in a space with people, with other dogs, and they don't cause a lot of distraction. Um, as I mentioned earlier, being able to get away from your desk and take a dog for a walk and meeting or... Um, you know, or or just even having the dogs there to comfort and and create conversation and camaraderie as as even icebreakers have improved our productivity.
0: Vetster is calling on major businesses in Canada and the U.S. to sign up for what is being called a hashtag National Pet Day Off pledge. What is this all about?
4: National Pet Day Off recognizes the important role that pets play um, in all of our employees' lives. And again, it addresses the major concern for employers in Canada, that the workforce has drastically changed over the last couple of years. And to retain and improve the productivity of great talent, we have to support all the needs of employees and pets represent a big part of um, lives of our employees. And so what we wanted to do is support this movement. We wanted to create a lot of recognition for employees who have pets and make employers a lot more aware that of just how important it is to include pets in some of the coverage and thoughts um, that we have when trying to uh, take take care of our employees.
0: Mark, there might be a business owner right now who's thinking, "Yeah, this might work in my workplace." What are some of the initial steps they should take to make sure this is a success?
4: Well, you have to get your office set up. So first, I would um, absolutely pull the staff at the office and make sure that. Um, it's going to have a positive effect in that, you know, collectively your office does want to have pets in the office. And then it's about setting policies and making sure that the pets that do come into the office, just as we've discussed, can behave well and are going to do well in that kind of setting. And I think that once uh, those things are in place, it's going to be about tolerance because you are going to have some issues, you are going to have some accidents, But overall, I think when you look back at the experience, it should be a very positive one. Beyond that, I think you could also look at, uh, we have an incredible product at VETSTER called VETSTER for Work. And this allows um, employers to provide pet credits and pet health credits on VETSTER for all of their staff. So one great way to support the cause and show your employees that you care about the pets in their lives is to provide benefits for these pets through Uh, vetster so we encourage everybody to go to um, nationalpetdayoff.com join the movement and uh, participate in in the pet's lives uh,
0: of your employees Uh, who knows some uh, local businesses could soon be hosting a pet meetup at their office and that would be interesting to see for sure mark thanks for the time today
4: Thank you very much for having us.
0: Mark Bordeaux is the CEO and co-founder of veterinary telehealth platform, Vetster. If you're going to be inviting pets into your workplace, uh, please take Mark's suggestions. And polling the office first, don't just bring your dog or cat or... Uh, ferret or who knows what to uh, the workplace and say, hey, we're bringing our pets to work now.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The Fraser Institute has released a new study on standardized testing in schools across this country. And long story short, it's on the decline and will have an impact on our education system going forward. It's called the Decline of Standardized Testing in Canada report and looks at how standardized testing has changed in virtually every province in this country over the last couple of decades and the potential consequences of those changes here joining us now is the author of this report michael zwagstra a senior fellow at the fraser institute and also a public high school teacher michael good morning how are you
7: good morning i'm doing well thank you
0: well let's start with how standardized testing has changed in canada what was it like before and what is it like now
7: Well, it should be noted that uh, each province obviously has its own standardized uh, testing system, and so it varies from province to province. It's because education is a provincial responsibility. Uh, But in my report, I look at three general trends that we see. Uh, We see standardized testing is being done on average in fewer uh, grade levels than it once was. Standardized tests uh, don't count for students' marks or count for a small percentage of students' marks than they once did And in in certain provinces, you see a move away from uh, tests that focus on subject-specific content knowledge and instead simply do generic literacy and numeracy skills. And so those are the three main trends that identify in the study.
0: So because we're not offering these tests more often and they're not subject-specific, what are the changes that we're seeing?
7: Well, the change that we're seeing is that it's it's much harder to know to get an accurate picture of student achievement. Uh, the the less often you do standardized testing, the less information you have about where students are really at. And that information is really important. We need to know how students are doing, and uh, I know that uh, people who don't like standardized testing immediately argue, well, teachers give tests in school, and of course they do. I'm a teacher myself, and I fully believe, I I recognize the importance of teachers uh, giving their own tests and taking circumstances into account locally, but it's very subjective because one teacher's test could be very different from another. A standardized test is a test that's written by all students at the same time, and is the same questions, and is marked centrally, and when you're doing that across a province, and if you have reasonable similarities across the country in terms of how these tests are done, you can get a a much more accurate picture of where students are at, and that's information we need to have.
0: And is that information readily available? So if a student writes a, let's say, a a reading, writing, or a math test in grade 3 or 6, or maybe 9 is the case here in Ontario, how soon do we get those results and then are able to change curriculum, if you will, or enhance teaching, if you will, to correct some of the deficiencies that may be realized?
7: Well, in most provinces uh, where where you have standardized testing, such as in Ontario, you have the uh uh, E.Q.A.O. tests uh, at grades uh, 3, 6, 9, and then a math assessment, assessment at grade 10. Uh, the results do come out fairly quickly. I mean, that is a positive thing in Ontario that those uh, those tests are done and they do come out reasonably quickly. Uh, however, they're a source of huge conflict in Ontario. The teachers' unions have long opposed standardized testing in every province, and uh if you if, of course if you don't have them then you're going you're gonna, you're going to have a problem and so provinces have to be firm here because there's a lot of pressure from the unions uh to get rid of them but uh, uh when you do have them usually the information does come out fairly quickly and it's valuable information that's why governments you know would be well advised to keep them
0: our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Michael Zwagstra. He's a public high school teacher and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, who's written a report, The Decline of Standardized Testing in Canada. And in that report, you point to a pretty compelling example of Manitoba and PEI. Tell us about that.
7: Well, Manitoba and PEI are two smaller provinces at uh, population wise that have gone in basically opposite directions with standardized testing. Manitoba used to have standardized testing at the grades 3, 6, 9 and 12 levels in in uh, in most of the core subject areas and then starting around year 2000, basically got rid of all the tests except for two of them at the grade 12 level. In contrast, Prince Edward Island had no standardized testing at all until 2007, and then they started introducing standardized testing at several grade levels. And over that same time period, uh, on the PISA tests, which are the Program for International Student Assessment that evaluates uh, students that are aged 15 in their math and reading skills and their science skills, Manitoba and PEI have basically switched places where Manitoba used to be middle of the pack in Canada and Prince Edward Island at the bottom. Now PEI is middle of the pack and Manitoba has gone to the bottom. Now, obviously, correlation doesn't prove causation, but it certainly is rather interesting that over the exact time period that these two provinces have gone in opposite directions with standardized testing, uh, you see some dramatic shifts in the PISA scores one province is going up and the other is going down.
0: That is very interesting. How disruptive has the pandemic been when it comes to building those foundational learning blocks in grades like three and six?
7: It's been very disruptive. Uh, remote learning is not a substitute for in-classroom learning. There are some, a small percentage of students uh, did well under remote learning, but the vast majority don't. You need in-person classroom learning. Ontario uh, was the provi- it was the jurisdiction in all of North America where students lost the most time in school that's not good. Uh, And so we've got a lot of catch-up to do. Students have lost uh, a lot of learning, and uh, it's really important that we keep students in school on a full-time basis with as few restrictions as possible.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Michael, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us, and great job in this report as well.
7: You're welcome. Thank you very
1: much.
0: That is Michael Zwagstra, a public high school teacher, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, and also the author of The Decline of Standardized Testing in Canada. And uh, you clearly heard the differences between province to province. It would be nice, and I'm not sure if we can get all the education ministers in one room together to agree on this, it would be nice if we had one standardized test across the country, or at least something that could be accommodated at schools from coast to coast, so we know that all our kids are singing from the same songbook, if you will. Uh, Because at the end of the day, when these kids ultimately graduate high school, um, they're all competing for spots in a college or universities uh, or the skilled trades, whatever the case is. And... I think it's important for each of those children to have the same learning experience. I know it might be pie in the sky thinking or, uh, you know, looking through rose colored glasses. But if they're competing for jobs on the same uh, playing field after school, they should all be given the same tools, I think, during school. Does that that make sense?